This is episode 57 of No Truths Barred. And on today's episode, we have Lawana Lawson. Lawana Lawson is here to discuss her new book, A Project Manager's Guide to Grant Writing, Volume 1. We also discuss the intricacies of grant writing, project management, along with cryptocurrency and issues related to black women. Make sure you check this one out and also subscribe to my YouTube channel, No Truths Barred, and make sure you follow me on Instagram. Take care. Peace. Everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of No Truths Barred. This is episode 57 of No Truths Barred, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet. And I'm your host, Hoikawaku <coughs> Timmons, and that is a regular cough, not a COVID cough. Anyway, make sure you follow me on Instagram at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, underscore Kawaku, K-W-A-K-U, underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And also make sure you follow my new Instagram page, which is underscore to the left, No Truths Bar podcast. Also on Facebook, follow my new page, which is No Truths Bar Timmons. Also on uh, Twitter, at Hoy, H-O-I-T, underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U, underscore Timmons, T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And listen, without further ado, I have somebody that's uh, really special. Um, I consider them a friend of the show. Uh, this is their third appearance on this show, and it's a proper appearance this time. So, something like they said, three times is a charm. And uh, I have no other than the powerful uh, Lawana Lawson, and she's put out a really compelling book. And I encourage you, if you have any sort of interests or predilections about uh, being becoming a, or starting a nonprofit or getting into project management or what uh, what's involved in grant writing, you'll want to pick up a project manager's guide to grant writing. Volume One, and once again, I want to welcome the powerful Lawana Lawson. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had like an applause sound for you. I, I wish I had something, you know, on deck like that. But uh, but yeah, um, I think you've introduced yourself enough on the previous episode. So, uh, if you wanted to, you could give the people like a very brief synopsis of just who you are and what you do if they've missed the other two episodes. Absolutely. What's going on, fam? This is my brother right here, Brother Koi Faku Timmons. Make sure y'all follow him and share all of his pages. He's on Instagram and Twitter, and I think he got back on Facebook with No Truth Bar Podcast. So make sure you support. But yeah, a little bit about me. I, um, you know, I lived in Richmond, Virginia for... Most, Most of my, of my life, and, and uh, uh, just recently moved out to Texas. Now I'm in San Texas. Been here since 2013, and uh, since I came here, I started my own business, and the business has been thriving. Mm. Um, the business is tacit growth, and uh, we are a, are a social impact information technology project management firm. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Also, uh. Do you have a the uh, what's the website for your company? If they wanted to go onto your website, learn a little bit more about your company, what is that website for the people? Website, website is, at, is at growth is tacit.com. Growth is tacit.com. Okay, is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, great. So look, let's jump into the book. Um, what I'm going to say is that 
and I told you this when we were talking earlier, uh, this book kind of puts me in a frame of mind of like Dr. Claude Anderson. When he wrote Poweronomics, I think that no uh, black economist or anybody that actually works in finance really presented us a pragmatic guide to ownership, but he kind of coupled his with the legacy of systemic racism, systemic racism via economics. And the way I look at your particular book is that what it does is it takes uh, language, jargon that can kind of be a little bit too intricate, not because people can't comprehend it, but it may be alien and you may not have a good point of reference for it. And I know a lot of black and brown people via conversations that I've had and they want to start nonprofits and they want to, you know, they, they want to know how to start, where to go. And what I want to ask you, first of all, is when you think about your book, uh, there, and I want to, I guess this is a two-part question. Um, one, when you look at grant writing and project management, what is the preponderance of people of color in that particular space? And then my other question to follow up to that one is when you look at project management, when you look at grant writing, um, what void do you think that your book fills that you, you, you currently isn't, you aren't really seeing a lot of perspective or information being provided as it relates to grant writing that you think your book kind of, kind of more detail about? Lawanda Chambers Lawson's new book, A Project Manager's Guide to Grant Writing, Volume 1, can be found on her website, growthistacit.com. This book is also available on Amazon.com for Kindle download. The setup of what we make up as a board of directors for a nonprofit. But I want to ask you, since you pointed out in your book that you were 18, if I'm a 17-year-old in 2021, I'm an 18-year-old, and I'm like, you know what? I'm concerned about uh, women's rights. You know, the amount of, you know, what women get paid on the dollar versus men. I'm, a, I'm concerned about LGBT issues, etc. But I just don't know where to start. And I'm like a, a, a bubbly, bright, enthusiastic, optimistic, I'm going to change the world 19-year-old. And I come across your book. How do you think your book will influence younger people in that demographic as opposed to kind of what we typically think of late 20s, mid 30s, people running, you know, nonprofits? Mm. That's powerful. That's actually a powerful uh, reflection for me because I want them to be able to see this book as an opportunity to translate that passion, you know, because it's always about having really great ideas. We, a lot of us have a lot of really great ideas, but it's very difficult to be able to put the pen to paper and make things happen in a collaborative fashion. And that's really the issue that I think our young people are having nowadays, especially due to COVID. Um, everything is so I, 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 me, 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 everything is so individualistic. And when you're working on grants, especially you have to be a team leader, a team leader. You can't be a leader in the sense of Peter Drucker and all these other management science, uh, you know, yes. you've got to be a team leader. It's a totally different day. And people have to want to follow you because you are doing not only the leading, but you're also doing the work. So you have to have a good handle on what it means to know how to do business. And I think that this book gives you that really good introduction because you remember the section where we talk about uh, the composition of a grant writing team, mm -hmm. of a good cross-functional grant writing team. 
and you tying it to a you know what? I actually was gonna ask this question later, but since you went there, like why not now? Um, so I took a note, if you don't mind, I took a little bit a few notes. Um, in chapter three, so with the point you just said, when you're talking about the important attributes of a good grant writing team, this is what you listed. One, planned uh beneficiaries, two, great project champions, three experts, four innovators, and five visionaries. And this is why I want to ask you, in your experience and through the research you've done, all of the grant writing you've done, what what would you say out of all of those listed do most organizations and nonprofits seem to be the weakest in? And how can they improve that? They're always strong with visionaries and they're always weak with a cross-functional. You need the other people. You need the cross-functional team. Visionary needs to be a part of each of the other roles. It can't just be the visionary by themselves. And that's where the nonprofits normally suffer because they've got people who have great ideas. And you'll see this on the board of directors all the time. There's always going to be a bunch of people there that have a great, a lot of great ideas, but yeah. they don't know how to, to make it happen. You know, to put them mm-hmm. into action is two totally separate, uh, different things They're because they don't know how to work with other people. That's really what it boils down to. Is most of these people who have these great ideas don't know what it takes to bring them into action because it can't be you that puts them into action. You have to have a team yeah. that does the work. And you're supposed to also be there doing the work in your lane, but your team has to be doing their own different components of work as well. And that's that's where the project management comes in to this work. Because you, you know, as a project manager, the first thing you're taught is to gather requirements and then construct a work breakdown structure. You know, yeah. so that you uh, understand what your contract, with your statement of work, you understand all of the individual bits of work that must be done in order for the project to be complete. And, it's the same thing for grants. And so this is what I, I want to ask kind of as a follow up to that. When you say the term leader or leadership, I think we kind of have in, in the uh, in the American notion or lexicon of what we perceive as a leader. We're thinking about Gordon Gecko with the corner office and this narcissist just telling everyone what to do. Um, but through your writings, it kind of shifted. That's not my idea of leadership, not at all, as you know. But I think I kind of had to have a slight paradigm shift in what I perceive as a leader. Because what I gather, this is, and you can correct me from your book, a leader is more so like a really astute and a visionary servant to benefit and carry others because they may have certain limitations that your leader does not have. And it's more of a selfless position. Um, what, can you expand on your definition of leadership as it relates to project management? What, what are the attributes of a competent and astute leader in your opinion? The competent and astute leader is very clear, uh, like you were saying, about their strengths. You have to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And you know how to bring in those other individuals who are good at what you're not good at and you know how to empower them and you know how to stay out their way. You know, that's part of the problem is you get threatened because there's someone else who's smarter than you. I don't get threatened, right? And you you don't either, that's just not our way. We don't get threatened by the people who are smarter than us. We know that that just makes whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish, it just makes it that much easier because whatever it is that you, you can do uh, well, I can complement that and we'll be able to get to where we're trying to go a lot faster together, you know, rather than individually. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, most of these organizations, they don't function that way. 
you know, they function with the scarcity mindset. And when you're functioning with the, a scarcity mindset, you know, everything is about there's this one piece of pie, you know, there's this one big pie, and there's only a certain number of pieces that can be carved from that pie. And if I let you outshine me, then I won't be able to get a piece of the pie, but you will. You know, they're, they're not functioning from abundance. They're, they're functioning from a place of scarcity. And I think, I think the, the, the paradigm under which we live, it kind, of, it kind of encourages you to move that way. You know, it's like the zero-sum mentality, and that kind of governs the way we build teams, the way we're going to act, the way we do business with one another. And, you know, I think it's a saying, um, I can't remember where this aphorism is from, but it says, like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, uh, go together. Um, and I want to kind of get a little bit more on the concrete side as well of your book. Now, as I know, with a for-profit business, I know that the the, the uh, legal entity of it could be like an S-Corp, an LLC, um, uh, a sole proprietorship. I know that. But when you're talking about starting a nonprofit, um, what, I guess, kind of what preliminary research should a nonprofit do uh, to really figure out what their legal entity is? I know, I know of the 501c3. I don't know if there's more. Um, can you elaborate on how does a, a person that's trying to start a nonprofit go about establishing that legal entity and why is it so important as well? That's a great question. Um, you know, not all nonprofits are nonprofit. And it's a, it's a very interesting space mm. to be in. <laughs> but the IRS, um, you know, when you look at the C3 that's organized for charitable purposes, and you look at the C4s that are more so organized for political and membership purposes, you look at the C6s, that are organized as trade associations and membership organizations. Like when I was the president of the uh, Alamo chapter for the Project Management Institute, uh, uh, we were chartered, we're chartered 501c6 organization. So we came under a global uh, organization and we were chartered for the purposes of essentially that exact same body. So our articles of incorporation mirrored the articles of incorporation of that other body uh, in our bylaws where you saw the difference in our um, mission and in our vision and in our uh, our programming. Our programming and our daily operations um, were different from the larger body, but you look at us and we were still very much a 501c6 charter organization. Not saying that all 501c6s need to be chartered, but most 501c6s are. You know, you look at your chambers of commerce all throughout the country, and a lot of them, if they're not uh, organized as LLCs, they're going to be organized as 501c6 uh, nonprofit organizations. So I think that's the first place to start is when you talk to these founders who want to go into business, that's what they need to be clear on. You're going into business. It doesn't matter if the business is organized uh, for profit or nonprofit, you're going into business. It has to be managed like a business. And that's where you start, you know, and then once you talk to founders and, and before they even decide if they want to be a C3 or a C4 or a C6 or a benefit corporation or, or you know, there's so many different iterations and so many types of uh, organiza or, uh, organizing structures for nonprofits. Uh, before you even go there, you have to talk to these founders and figure out what they're really trying to get done. You know, yeah. we have to start there and we have to figure out who, who needs to do this work with them because that board of directors is really going to be there to help them uh, decide, you know, what their organizing structure needs to be. And those board of directors, those members need to be in place before you decide what structure to organize under. 
Now, um, this is one of the things I think that most people find kind of murky. You made a key point there. You said it's a nonprofit, but it has to operate like a business. So this is what my, my follow-up question to that is, because this is a question that I have, and, and I've heard other people ask this as well, especially people that I know that are, are looking at starting a nonprofit. How do you make money? If I'm on the board of directors, how am I making money? Because you hear the term nonprofit. But how do I make money? How do I make the profit out of my nonprofit? Legally, of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that's the question I want to put out there because I think a lot of times when we think of nonprofits, we think of these little small organizations, but there are very gigantic organizations that receive tens of millions of dollars that are technically nonprofits. So could you kind of walk us through the various complexities of how you make money from starting your nonprofit. Even churches have to make money to, you know, to feed their members, the congregation, they have to keep the lights on in the building. They have to acquire real estate. You know, that's real estate. They have to purchase yeah. buildings. They have to maintain the parking lot. You know, you're a business. Even when you're uh, organized for charitable purposes, you still have to keep the lights on. You still have to have um, a way, a vehicle to serve people. Yeah. And if you're going to be serving anyone, you have to have money. So the way that it works, uh, generally speaking, for nonprofits is, and this is where the fundraising and grant writing component comes into play, the way that you raise money and the way that you spend money is um, very much tied to your mission and vision. Unlike for-profit businesses, you know, like Amazon, you think about Amazon, you think about, um, you know, uh, Walmart, et cetera. They don't have to give you a mission and vision statement and say, you know, we have this store set up so that you can purchase products because we want to be the one-stop shop for all the things that you need so that yeah. you can live a better quality of life, right? Like, they don't have to have that. But as a nonprofit, you do. Because the nonprofit, the IRS is dictating to the nonprofit that, the 501c3 nonprofit, that is, that you are organized for charitable purposes. So you have to be a charity and charities can be foundations, they could be the NFL, you know, they can be any organization that's organized for charitable purposes. So all you're saying to the IRS is that, yes, we're raising money, we make money, but the money uh, is donated to, you know, 50% of it's donated here, uh, or 100% is donated here to this other nonprofit for this purpose. That's, that's what, that's the difference between the nonprofit and profit. It's just the purpose for the funds. Gotcha. Okay. Cause that, to me, that provides like, um, it definitely provides like a lot of clarity because I think that's kind of the concerns of people is, you know, how am I actually making money for that from this? And you actually put that, uh, succinctly. Um, now I want to talk about the digital divide, if you will. So when you look at, and I, and I pointed this out earlier, and as you corrected me about this misconception about a lot of black and brown people not being in these spaces, but I kind of want to take that a step further. When it comes to the digital divide and the access to educational resources, which your book will be one of, um, how do you kind of fix that problem of how this information, because there are a lot of nonprofits, like, for example, I know a, a, a sister here that has a nonprofit um, where she works with uh, victims from abused uh, relationships, uh, women that have been through domestic violence. And so they do a lot of great work um, here in the Richmond area. But as I said earlier, 
a lot of it comes from a lot of the reasons why people find it so difficult. It's just not the access. They don't have the access to the information. So as with your book, um, A Project Manager's Guide to Grant Writing Volume 1, how does your book fit in to A, starting to disseminate that information to more of our people and then fixing that kind of uh, that gap in that digital divide as it goes to disseminate to disseminating information about project management, grant writing, and you know the the subtleties and the nuances of starting a nonprofit. You know, it's what's so interesting about the question that you're asking is the way that I see this book functioning as a bridge is by introducing financial literacy in a way. Uh, to grant writing and to project management that I don't think a lot of project managers um, are really espousing. And mm. I think that that's a problem. I think it really kind of starts with recognizing that we we are functioning, our businesses, our nonprofit, for-profit businesses are functioning in a very different environment today than they would have been 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 years ago, cash was king. Now, 2021, Bitcoin. Is I'll touch on that. Later. I'll touch on that. Okay. I'm just saying, blockchain technology is is it? You know, the yeah. gold isn't um, what gold was. You know, cash isn't what cash was. You know, cash mm-hmm. is is risky now. You know, if you have cash, you're supposed to be wrapping that into ownership. Cash isn't ownership. Cash is the opportunity to buy into ownership. And so you look at grant writing and you look at project management, it's kind of the same sort of way of thinking is if you're going to go into business, you need to be very clear on how to do business. And these are just some of the ways that you need to get clear, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like with the digital divide. We talk about the digital divide. What's so interesting about that is what did we think that we needed to do? We thought we needed to throw devices at the kids, you know, in the Mm -hmm. school systems. All right, just throw them a device you know, throw them, you know, some, some, uh, local, what do they call these things? These little hotspots, the local means, throw them some other, right. All these hotspots and they'll be fine. And what happened? They're still failing and they still are not being educated. Why? Because just like with the digital divide and grant writing and fundraising, what they have in common is that it's not enough, uh, to just get exposure to it. You have to build awareness. You have to have education and literacy training around how to use these tools. These are tools, you know, but it's just like with cash. Cash is a tool. It's a tool to ownership. If you don't know how to own the real estate and you're still renting and you have all the cash in the world, but you don't know how to make that cash work for you, even in your sleep, it's the same thing with the digital divide. I've got all these devices, but I don't know how to make them talk. I don't know how to leverage them uh, to to give me a, a a type of life that would make my life a lot my, the quality of my life a lot higher and a lot a lot easier. It's the same thing for uh, those of us who are going into business and are looking at possible grant opportunities, or possible fundraising opportunities. Those are tools. Mm-hmm. They're tools. If you don't know how to use them right, and you don't know how to get you know folks like myself that can come in and consult you, uh, if you don't know how to use a it's just a tool that you still don't know how to use. So I'm hoping that this book will at least wow. give people the opportunity to speak the language that people like me that do this for a living 
this is what the, this is the language we have to speak. Yeah. And so I want this book to give people a very basic appreciation of the complexity of the work that we do. You know, it's just like when you see somebody put up a website and you know that they had to transfer a domain to, to put up that website, you hear them tell you that it took them 12 hours to transfer the domain, but you have no idea what all went into that, what coding languages, what programming went into that, yeah. right? You, don't, you have no idea. It's the same thing with grant writing. If I tell you it took me two weeks to get this grant application taken care of, you know, you need to have an appreciation for that. And th this book should give you, you know, sort of like a, a blanket appreciation uh, for that. You know, now you're kind of getting that sneak peek into the depths of what all it really takes to be successful, you know, in those endeavors. Uh, do you have any, like, uh, we don't know how the rest of the year is going to go, but as I was reading this, like, do you have any plans, like, for maybe like a TED Talk or... Um, like a speaking tour um, based upon this book? Is that something you've been kind of toying with? I didn't think about that, but now <laughs> oh, <laughs> I put it on my mind. <laughs> when you do the TED Talk, you got to give me a shout-out. You got to... <laughs> and I am here today because somebody told me. <laughs> no, but, 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 but legit, like, I think this is something that um, you should really do, like, some, some video lectures from, but... What I'm trying to be careful about, because you're the well, you're the second person I've interviewed about their book. You want people to actually go buy. I don't want to give them everything now, like so. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, give them some good stuff, but not yeah, a little sprinkles here and there. Um, this was something that piqued my interest uh, because you know now a lot of high schools they already have coding programs available for students. Um, I think as early as tenth grade, I believe, or maybe even earlier. Uh, to the best of your knowledge. Are there any uh, like grant writing programs or anything along those lines in place for high schoolers? Mm -mm, no, and they wouldn't. They honestly wouldn't get a chance to even get an introduction to that uh, to the grant writing lexicon until they went to university, and um, mm. and probably not until their graduate study, because I know some under. Grads, some some universities undergrads get out, uh, access to like nonprofit management and part of the nonprofit management mm -hmm. uh, degree path is grant writing and um, forming establishing board of directors and you know strategic planning and tactical planning those mm -hmm. sorts of things are going to be within the nonprofit management degree pathway but normally you don't get to that level until grad school would would that be something you would like to see with younger people maybe kind of giving like get like a general just kind of like a general maybe like you know two or three month course just about the fundamentals of a nonprofit and project management not to say that they're gonna of course they're gonna have to go to a graduate level to get the more advanced studies but just something to kind of get them semi acclimated to the to the material do you think that's something that could be you know feasible or pragmatic to start maybe at 11th or 12th grade well, it's funny you said that because what I'm doing here in San Antonio is um, my business is now a industry partner with uh, Edison P-Tech High School here. And the P-Tech is an accelerated program for um, for students who are historically underrepresented and historically underserved uh, populations of kids here in San Antonio uh, who get to go through this high school program to get their associate's degree when they graduate with their high school diploma, but they also get 
um, experiential learning opportunities with industry partners. So I just signed up uh, for my business to be able to, to bring a project management sort of lexicon to the students from a global perspective so that they understand how to do business um, from a global standpoint, working with businesses in Mexico and, and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and you know mm. Nigeria. So they're getting all kind of hands-on experience in high school uh, that will help them with, you know, fundraising if they want to look at different fundraising options. Because like we're saying, grant writing is just a tool. It's a tool in the toolkit um, yeah. for fundraising. So they're going to learn how to raise funds, you know, using social media, using marketing, um, using being very good writers, you know, being very good storytellers. A lot of good project management, just like a lot of good grant writing is storytelling, yeah. you know, so the, the students are going to be able to learn that. Uh, but but and that's why we call ourselves a, a information technology firm. Most of the work that we're doing is mining data. You know, when I'm working with different organizations, I'm literally having to tap into their infrastructure to figure out what is it that they have been doing uh, since their inception and what are they not talking about? You know, and and it takes for you to go in and, and pull the analytics, pull the SEO, pull the data, look at the reports, you know, pull the raw counts and put together the story, tell their story. And once you're able to tell their story, you can get them in front of any fundraising opportunities. You know, the sky literally is the limit. The cosmos is the limit at that point. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is something I meant to ask earlier. But just for, and I don't know if you mind disclosing this sort of information or do they need to read the book for this? So you, this is at your discretion. But in your opinion, um, what are like some of the common mishaps that a budding nonprofit does? Like what is kind of like a quotidian thing that you see amongst these nonprofits that are just starting up that's a common mistake that can kind of impede upon the progress of their nonprofit? And with that mistake, as you highlighted, what are some ways they can mitigate from making those that mistake or mistakes, in your opinion? They don't pay for the labor. You know, and I'm thinking right now about a particular digital archive and museum that I helped get started here in San Antonio. <clears throat> one, of, one of the biggest concerns for me was just because people are willing to do something for free for you, whether it be internships or uh, just re people from the community who care about your cause and, and they want to give something for free, mm -hmm. don't take it. As a nonprofit, just like the philanthropists and the donors who give you the money, you are responsible to the community that you serve and that you live within okay your backyard you need to hire from your backyard so if you're telling me that you're you know uh all about telling history and you're all about you know repatriation and and you know you support reparations and i look at your budgets and i don't see expense items expense lines going for fundraising expenses where you're paying uh to to take care of, of grant writers you know you're, you're contracting your services with grant writers who live in the neighborhood that you're functioning within who look like you and who look like the people that you're supposed to be serving as benefactors um if i don't see you doing that as a nonprofit, then you are not living up to your mission and you're not living up to your vision you know you're a hypocrite is what yeah. i call them yeah. And so I think most of the nonprofits 
uh, especially nowadays, are starting now to realize that you have a responsibility to take care of the communities that you live within, to hire from those communities, either either hiring them as 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 personnel or mm -hmm. contracting their services, because there's going to be a lot of micro businesses uh, within that neighborhood who need your uh, business. You need to be doing business with them, and if you're not, then you're failing them. You know, you're failing that community. That's the biggest issue that I've had. Wow. That would seem kind of uh, a little counterintuitive if that your mission is this, but yet you're not uh, you're not reciprocating uh, those sorts of resources back into the same constituency that you claim to advocate for. It, it does present present like a little bit of a problem. Um, I want to ask you, and I'm not going to have you reveal anymore. You're both going to make them go and buy it, <laughs> but. You had a concept in there, and I want you to kind of like go in on it. When you talk about total system buying, uh, put that within context. When you're looking at uh, you know project management, nonprofit, what does it mean to have total system buying? That means that everyone from the board of directors to your C-suite, your staff, all the way down to your volunteers is on board. Mm -hmm. So if you if you want to pursue, you know, a grant from the National Institutes of Health. And, you know, this is something that you already know the flow chart, you know, the workflow within your organization, you know, if it starts with, you know, the accountant, then it's got to go next to the grant administrator. And then the grant administration the administrator has to add their level of, of, of approval and work. And then it has to go to the chief development officer from there, and then they've got to do their thing. And then from there, got to go to the CEO. And then from there, it's got to go to the board chair for signature. You know your workflow, you know your flow chart. Yeah. If that does, that's, that might be the internal process. If you don't include the volunteers of your organization, and if you don't include, most importantly, beneficiaries, you know, you need to sometimes, if you're going to go to the NIH to get support, you yeah. need to go to NIH first sometimes and let them know that you're interested in getting their support. Let them know up front and give them the opportunity to be a part of that process. You know, if you're preparing the grant application, hit them up, hit up, hit up their program officers and make sure that you're including all of the latest research uh, that you might need in terms of your literature review. You know, make sure that you're including all of the partners, you know, NIH Marty, they already have a grant probably with a university that's in the area that you're working with them. You don't know that because you didn't do your research. Okay, did you contact NIH and let them know that you're interested in pursuing this? Maybe they tell you that you shouldn't pursue it as a prime. Maybe you should pursue it as a subcontractor and come in underneath this university or come in uh, with the city of San Antonio instead, instead of trying to be a prime. Those are the types of things you have to do to involve your beneficiaries. But again, it's about the total system buy-in. Bring in all of your volunteers. You know, you should have some, some sort of volunteer uh, a management program at, or at the organization where which you're finding ways to communicate with them and receive communications back. You know, you need to be able to solicit feedback from them because you're going to be relying on them uh, to implement a lot of the aspects of the, of the work that you're going to, you know, bring in, but then also you're going to rely on them to tell the story. Yeah. And, you know, you, you need to tell them upfront before, uh, everything comes down because once it comes down later on, it's too late <laughs> and and they might feel a certain type of way that they weren't involved in the first place. You know, maybe they had a cousin at NIH <laughs> that they could have hooked you up with 
but you didn't even think to include them. So now you've offended them and, you know, you, you've kind of hurt your shots of getting the grant because the cousin of NIH could have hooked you up. That seems like the way you describe that, and also to the people that will watch this, that's actually in the book. I got her to expose a little of her book there. Uh, it's there. I just wanted to ask you. <laughs> but, but, um, but when you look at total system buy-in and you talk about all of the different variables, it seems like it's a lot of moving pieces. How do organizations, if you're looking to have full, competent total system buy-in, um, if you don't mind disclosing this, uh, how do you get everybody in synchronicity for that? Because it sounds like a lot to the layman ear, such as mine. So what is the way to get everything in line uh, from your experience? The easiest way for me has been um, not technology, which is very interesting. You mm -hmm. have to get from behind the technology. I think a lot of people... Uh, they get used state they use uh, quick quickbooks for example and you know with quickbooks you have the t sheets function where you can you know you have a record of all of your volunteers and you have a record of all your board of directors as well because you know they're logging their hours and um you know you 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 have a record of all your vendors so you you kind of know who's coming in and out of the organization um and then a lot of organizations have salesforce or they have a uh, uh, razor edge or um you know, Monday.com, they've got other types of uh, software, enterprise level software that can, you know, they can use to communicate with everyone mm -hmm. and to solicit feedback and to kind of let people know what's going on. You have to step from behind that. You know, you have to get out in front of that and you have to be forward facing and you have to be able to tell everyone uh, exactly what it is that they're looking to hear as it relates to these types of opportunities, because everybody's got their own agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these people in these organizations, the nonprofit is not yours. You know, you might be the chief executive officer or the executive director or the president of the organization, but that is not your organization. That organization still belongs to the public. So you as the leader have to, you know, empower your staff and empower the, the volunteers that you might have that are, you know, what we call tier one volunteers. You know, they're the ones that you feel comfortable with letting run the show if you're not around type of deal. You have to be able to bring in your core team and communicate with them in a way that empowers them so that they can go and, and, and advocate for this opportunity absent you. Because nobody, let's be real, nobody wants to talk to the boss, you yeah. know. No one wants to talk to the boss. So the boss has to find a way to empower uh, the rest of the team uh, so that they're able to go out and, and get that buy-in from everyone. But the way they get the buy-in is they present the win-win. You know, you have to be able to communicate to these people uh, why this is something that they want. Yeah. You know, it's got to it's gotta uh, be favorable for their agenda as well. And there's ways of communicating that that are not, you know, um, lies or, you know, fluff. You can keep it real and tell them the win-win and, and bring them in by asking them their, for their support and asking them for their help. And definitely. And, and um, I kind of have a, a question here. Now, this is a, a little bit, it could correlates, if you will, because it's something that I personally am interested in. Um, when you look at a nonprofit and you have like, you can have like a, a COO, CEO, et cetera, when it comes to a treasurer, this is something that I wanted to know, just kind of my little bit of research. Do you also have to be like a CPA? Um, how is that defined within a nonprofit? Because 
you know, if you're dealing with, you know, finances and numbers, or do you have like a financial advisor or a CPA that you consult with, or is that all supposed to be within the treasurer? How does that work? Right. So the, the interesting balance between a treasurer and a CPA is that sometimes the treasurer is the CPA. Sometimes the treasurer is like an, a, an attorney. Um, it just depends on the, the treasurer's background um, in terms of, you know, did they work as a CPA in the private sector and then they decided to come into the nonprofit sector, which is always an interesting transition because nonprofit accounting and private sector accounting are not at all the same. <laughs> So you definitely want to have uh, a CPA that is, that has a specific nonprofit background. And if you've got a C3, then you're looking specifically for a 501c3 uh, trained CPA uh, mm -hmm. versus just a general CPA. You know, it's kind of like law. Accounting is very similar to law. There are specialties. So, you know, depending on how you're organized, you want to find people that have that particular experience. If you want to get the best, uh, the best service. But yeah, I mean, normally for the most part, the treasurer doesn't have to be a CPA. They don't have to be an attorney. A treasurer could be anyone, you know, it could be anyone that you appoint. Uh, normally what we like to do for the treasurer position is we like to appoint someone who's got a financial or accounting background. Yeah. Um, but that's not, it's not required, you know, for the most part. A lot of people, um, one of the one of the things that I did when I joined a really big nonprofit, they gave me the opportunity to be the treasurer. Uh, the treasurer is one of the most powerful positions on the board. You know, you get to really learn the organization. And um, and I turned it down, of course, because that's a lot of work. Uh, but it's definitely a very powerful position. If you're, you know, if you're ever offered a treasurer position for a nonprofit, you know, I would always recommend people to take it because it's 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 just a um, a very it's a very important and integral perspective mm -hmm. for a a nonprofit organization and you learn how to run the business you truly learn how to run the business yeah and and to me because I, i've had like brief dealings uh with nonprofits, just kind of like where i work at now and you know it's always kind of an issue with the, the treasurer because if they're if we're referencing like you know for example their 990z or pf etc they may not know where certain things are at and they kind of have to converse with a financial advisor or cpa and so I kind of always wondered, uh, does the treasurer, the treasurer have to be both of those or, you know, those tasks can kind of be delegated if you needed like con uh, counsel or advice from somebody that's like, you know, cert a certified pu public accounting, if you will. Um, so I want to uh, finish off the book segment of this because uh, we're going to touch on a few other things during this episode. Um, if you could, could describe in general what will people gain? What do you think the best thing people will gain from reading your book? And I also want you to shout out the website. And I also want you to mention all of the different ways they can download their your book and purchase it as, purchase it as well. Um, but in total, uh, what do you feel that the impact of your book will be on this project management landscape? And then also tell people everywhere they can find your book as well. Okay. I really, honestly, I do, I do not know. I, when I put it together, I didn't really put it together thinking about, okay, this is going to do this. You know, this is going to change the game. This, you know, I didn't think about that at all. I really wanted to put it out because, you know, for my business, I'm trying to move away from grant writing. You know, I'm trying to move away from grant writing. 
uh, because it's just it's it's a lot of work and it's just something that I've done for so long that I don't really have the passion to do anymore. You know, mm-hmm. so I wanted to write the book to sort of rid myself of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like my opportunity to be like, OK, I'm done with this now. Oh, let's okay. move on to the next thing. You know, so that it was very selfish. It's very selfish reason why I wanted to put that put the book wow. out. Wow. But yeah, it can be found on um, Amazon. It's on Amazon Kindle uh, as an ebook, uh, a project manager's guide to grant writing, volume one. And it's also on my website. If you go to growthistacit.com, it's on our homepage and it's also on our product page. And um, it will be available as a hard copy book very soon. Awesome. Uh, possibly by summer? Yes, for sure. Yes. Definitely about, are we like 90% sure, 100% sure? I am 100% sure, yes. Okay, so look, um, let us all know and uh, definitely, and if I can like help share, you know, the content, let me know, you know, I always, I'm down, always been down to do that. So, uh, you know, once again, uh, it was a privilege to even, you know, knowing you for like, what, two years now, right? We've been knowing each other. <laughs> um, no, but wait. Wow, wait wait a minute, it's 12 years, right? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And just to see where you were at and now you're putting out literature, I just want to say, you know, and I told you in the DM, uh, it's just powerful to be around Black people that are doing great things because it influences you to want to push yourself harder and to improve and to contribute um, to our community. So. Um, much thanks, uh, sister, for that. Um, and it's definitely something that, you know, we're going to benefit from because we don't know the mind that's going to interact with book and what they'll be inspired to create because of what you contributed to the cosmos. So deep thanks, my sister, for real. Um, but to move on, uh, you know, both of us, both of us being Trump supporters, you know, we <laughs> listen to all jokes, all jokes aside. No, no, that, that's a joke. But um, I would be remiss if we did not talk about the events that transpired in our nation's capital on January 6th uh, of 2021. Uh, I was working and I received several text messages from people that the capital was being invaded. And I'm thinking this is a joke. So I go on my CNN app and lo and behold, the capital is... Uh, being invaded. Um, I just kind of want this to be an open discussion. I really don't have any questions structured for this part. I just kind of want this to be open dialogue. Uh, what was your first impression when you saw that? Uh, I think it was a Wednesday that that happened, right? I think it was a Wednesday. Yeah, and I was, was blown away. I was really blown away because I used to intern on Capitol Hill. I was an intern on Capitol Hill, and I just remember taking the Amtrak into town to get on the metro because we had to take the Amtrak from Richmond yep. and then you tra- yeah. Union Station and then from Union Station. <laughs> you go to Union Station. Yep. Exactly. Yep. I just remember taking that trip and you know how you just feel so you felt democracy like you felt um, royal like you just it was the symbology that is DC right the symbolism that is DC you know you just and, and so for me to see these fools, you know, 
climbing the doggone wall. I mean, I was like, what is this? What what barbarism is this? And then to see the battle flag, the battle flag inside of the Capitol building, I was floored. I, I was so pissed off. I was I was hurt. I was everything. You know, I was I was in disbelief that I saw the battle flag, Confederate damn flag being being like, you know what I'm saying, paraded around in the Capitol building. I was floored. I was done. I was absolutely done. So here's my question. And and you know I'm about to be stupid with this, but I but I'm gonna put this out there. What do you call an army that at one point in time wanted to invade the Capitol and kill the president? And then not only after they killed the president, they were going to expand their territory into Mexico and bring more black slaves into Mexico if they had won the war. What do you call people that want to kill the president of a country? Sounds kind of like treason to me, doesn't it? Treasonous terrorist. So if you're waving a Confederate flag, now this is what this is what I'm setting this up for. A lot of these people will claim that they're patriots. But you're waving the flag of an army that wanted to get rid of the union. How does this work in your psyche? Well, how do you balance that out? How do you how do you make that make sense? You're waving a Confederate flag. It is this is this makes no sense whatsoever. And I remember, you know, I think you see me post this on Twitter. I told people the red flag for me was when I saw the interview with Trump. And he joked about having a third term. He had another interview. You can, everybody can go on YouTube and look this up, indicating, hey, I should have a, a 20-year term limit. Whenever you see a leader, i.e. Mussolini, i.e. Joseph Stalin, who've made similar, who made similar statements, you don't play around with that. That's not something that you're like, oh, they're just being a silly goose. They're just being funny. When the president of the United States even entertains the idea of that, it's a huge red flag. And so when I saw what happened, and then before that, you heard the speech that Trump said. He told them to march on the Capitol. Giuliani said, go and fight, combat. These were the terms that Giuliani and Trump used, and he, they incited these people to, to storm the Capitol. And then the fact was, I think they found a car where they had, um, what is it called? Like um, bounding wires, duct tape. So that tells me you were planning on holding people for ransom if you have that with you. The police on the Capitol were leading them to the offices of different congressmen. So that said to me that you had law enforcement that empathized with Trump. You have military, some military that empathize with Trump, which is dangerous because it looks like a coup, in my opinion. I, absolutely. Absolutely. Sedition was a nice word for what we saw on January 6th. And yeah. the bottom line is, is that domestic terrorism, and this was, we've always known about the two Americas, you know, that, that's been the conversation that we've been having since forever. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just reminded of Asada Shakur. I'm, I'm reminded of, mm. of, of so many of our political prisoners. And I was so, to say that I was upset, to say that I was, um, my heart, you could have just snatched it out of my body when I saw this. And then I saw the response 
of law enforcement and I saw the response of Congress, Twitter and other private sector companies had Goldman Sachs, they had stronger words and stronger actions than Congress did coming out of that. The private sector yeah. had stronger actions than our own Congress. Mm -hmm. Disgusting. You know, and you saw the National Guard was called, Virginia National Guard, Maryland, all of the, and then poor DC. Listen, I mean, Mayor Bowser was like, what do you want me to do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she's absolutely right. What do, what do we want her to do? <laughs> and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the National Guard like an hour late getting there? It wasn't like, so, is that correct? Like an hour? There was no real emergency response. There was. There was no real, there was no real emergency response. And you, and you can tell because these fools had enough time to go in there and go they were behind the dais. I mean, they were there just, what were they saying? Oh, yeah, we're going to have to take the country back. Yes. Yeah. Going into people's laptops, stealing stuff. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. And they, until this day, we haven't recovered everything that was stolen from the building. And, and how uh, is that possible? And also, uh, I read about explosive devices being found in the Capitol. Also, uh, some of the people, some of the terrorists, and let's start doing this too. Call people what they are. They, everybody that participated in that was a terrorist. Every single person, I don't care if they were 65 years old or 15 years old. If you participated in invading the Capitol, you are a terrorist and you need to be uh, put in prison. But some of the people that were there also defecated inside of the building. I mean, just like heinous stuff. And did you see what AOC said? She said that she was terrified to go to her office because they were showing people where to find different senators, congressmen's offices. So she ran somewhere else out of uh, out of fear for her own life. Jeez. So she didn't even hide in her office. So this is what transpired under the influence of Trump. And did you see with uh, Rowley Williams, the, the, the terrorist who stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop, got out of jail on bail? Thank you. And then the other ones have gotten sentences. They're only serving, what, five years? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have brothers that are locked up for, for marijuana for just having it in possession, not even selling it. Talk so about it. serving life sentences. Yeah. Life, or, or, or another example that a lot of people have been using, which is a very poignant example, is the story of Khalid Browder. Oh! Where he was accused of stealing a backpack. And this brother sat in prison for, excuse me, in jail for in Rikers Island for three years. Three years. Didn't get access to a judge, trial, three years. This woman went into the capital of the United States, stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop and wanted to sell it to Russia. And within two or three days, you're out on the streets. And what did they say? Oh, the judge gave her a stern warning. What? A stern warning? To Americas. And we lost his. We lost him. We lost him. We did. We took his life. We lost him for that. For it, the trauma. The state of New York killed that young man. Absolutely. I'm not even going to say he took his own life. The state of New York, the justices failed him. And how many other black men and women, like you remember uh, about seven or eight years ago, 
when they had the brother handcuffed in the back of the truck, uh, the wagon, the police wagon in Baltimore. Yes. I can't remember the brother's name, but he died in custody. But another tape came out within a, like a few weeks after that, where it showed police in Baltimore planning drugs on black men. Yes. And let's not get it twisted, black women too. Because yes. a lot of times when we have these conversations about mass incarceration, we don't talk about the black women that's affected as well. Yes. So this is a problem that I think when we talk about it, we always focus in on black men. But I kind of think the, the 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 violence against black women at the hands of law enforcement, it kind of goes, dare I say, unnoticed, in my yes. opinion. Absolutely. We don't really give it the same magnitude and the same importance, importance and validity as if it happens to a black male. Like we talked about Sandra Bland, but there are like dozens of other Sandra Blands. Yes. But at the same time, and this is no, I'm not trying to like, oh, well, this person here or there, but George Floyd is burned into our memory. Mm-hmm. Tamir Rice is burned into our memory. Um, Trayvon Martin is burned into our memory. Sandra Bland, and then I think now, um, what's my other sister's name now? Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor, burned into our memories. But the problem is there's dozens of Breonna Taylors and Sandra Blands, and we're not talking about them. And, and, and I don't know how we remedy that. We have to be able to value women again. We have to replace value on our women. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do. You know, and it, it kind of comes, uh, it is, I don't know if you mind this, but remember the conversation we had just before we officially started recording? Uh, would you mind if we, is that a conversation you wouldn't mind talking about <laughs> on the podcast? I think we have to talk about it. So when it comes to valuing women, I think our value has a certain paucity to it. We have an extremely finite definition of value when it comes to women and so we were talking and i brought up uh i I forgot but i brought up uh something about you know just kind of the society and how overexposed and everything is and whatnot and you started to talk about uh cardi b and meg the stallion and i guess what were some of the caveats because i like for you to, to tell it to the people instead of me and i'll bounce off of you what are some of the caveats you think you will put out there for people like Meg Thee Stallion and Cardi B to kind of be that biopoly that controls the narrative of female hip hop and then just being such massive influences on young women, especially uh, for lack of better words, some people would term it, I guess, thought culture, if you will. Um, some people would say, hey, like I told you, my friend said it, they're, 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 um, advocates for the, the empowerment of female sexuality. Um, provide your take, please. My take was in the context of a human trafficking conference that we had here at yes. uh, Texas A&M San Antonio's campus where Centoya Long Brown was uh, one of the keynote speakers. Well, she was the, the keynote speaker. And she spoke so eloquently. And one of the points I, I always, I want to paraphrase her. She said, it wasn't the streets that brought her pain. It was the pain that took her to the streets. Ooh. And I think only, there's a language barrier there. And I think only a few people, particularly Black people, Black and Brown people who understand that, that lived experience can understand how to translate that. And to me, 
the point that Sister Centoya is making is that at some point we have to recognize, and Cardi B already made the distinction herself when she was talking about her daughter not listening to her music and not watching her videos. These are entertainers. We live in a very individualistic society. Consumers, uh, you know, consumption is what's driving uh, wealth and riches. You know, folks on YouTube are getting to be millionaires and it's an easy way to make money that's mindless because yeah. they're just using what people think is aesthetically pleasing. Cardi B, I think herself, made the point that Sister Sintoya made, which is that it's not about sex work and 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 making it dignified and everything of that sort. Those those sisters have their own struggles. What we're saying on the mainstream uh, main platform is for young girls that are coming up that are impressionable that don't understand because not all of these girls have gone through this experience, right? Of having uh, experienced sexual harassment at a young age, yeah. like a lot of us have, or uh, molestation. A lot of those girls are still innocent. They haven't, they don't know that experience. It's like, yeah. remember we talked about growing up in Richmond, you know, the influence from Atlanta and, and New York was so much, you know, yeah. that, you know, we ended up loving the music. We love Three Six Mafia, you know, we love Jim Jones and Joel Santana, but to be real, the language barrier existed even with the music because we was rocking through it, but we really couldn't relate to it. Like we related to it in our own way, mm -hmm. you know, in our own experience growing up in Richmond. We didn't grow up on stoops, you know, or in Brooklyn or, or in Harlem and, and you know, experiencing the, the type of poverty and the type of, of beauty in terms of culture and yeah. uh, the type of... Um, just dopeness overall in terms of knowledge and everything that comes from these these meccas of, of culture, mm -hmm. right? Like we didn't have that at our backyard, you know, we just mm -hmm. had the music, we had the influence. And that's kind of how it is today with these girls is they're so impressionable, you know, they're so impressionable. So what is the message that we're trying to get across? You know, yes, you should have body positivity. You know, yes, you should love yourself. You should look in the mirror every morning and say, I'm beautiful and I love I love who I see, but it shouldn't be at consequence to having big titties and a big ass or a fake ass. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's what we're saying is, is that there has to be reconciliation there. There has yeah. to be the opportunity to go back and say, I'm beautiful without all of this makeup and wigs and, and all the other things that are based on artifice. I'm yeah. beautiful in real life. I don't need to be made as a comic. I don't need this filter to actually be made beautiful. I'm beautiful naturally. Yeah, That's the problem. And I think that's the reclamation that needs to take place. But it's hard to have that conversation, you know, when you have the strip club stuff going on. You got all these other things that are all based on exploitation. And like you said brilliantly earlier, it's all based on the empire. This is all imperialistic capitalism. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, it's that they, they've taken... And like I said, I was talking to a brother and I was saying, um, this is something I've seen Louis Farrakhan talk about, but I heard other people talk about this, is that the science of mating and the science of a relationship, and maybe we don't want to look at it like that, but that's exactly what it is. And the point I was making is that when you look at these societies, like, uh, for example, in Sierra Leone, and you go back there, you study uh, some of the, Men the Mende and Limbe tribes, uh, for example, amongst some of the Yoruba. Uh, amongst like the world of these different groups, they would have secret societies that were dedicated to teaching you esoteric understandings, manhood, 
how you relate to your wife, um, how to rear children. And we had a, a repository of about a thousand to fifteen hundred, you know, years, fifteen hundred years worth of knowledge that we could use and build healthy relationships and families. Whereas in this Western hemisphere, that was uprooted. And we're in an environment where we're kind of in a precarious position because sexuality is marketed to us through a, 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 a conduit that's essentially anti-Black. It's racist. It's a paradigm of consumerism. And that's how we learn sexuality. We learn to barter sex. We're taught to barter sex. We're not taught to have healthy relationships. And as I was saying earlier, okay, the AWP is okay. All right, cool. We get it. But what is this, the conversation about how do we come together and rear children? What does a healthy uh, relationship look like on a spiritual level, a mental level, and a financial level? Um, how do we, and not only how do we build a healthy family, but how do those families come together and build community? Now, let's elevate the conversation there. If you want to talk about what Cardi and them talking about, I know I'm taking up in a way, that's great. But then soon we have to advance the conversation. Because then if we're just staying here, we're at an id level, as my man Abraham Maslow would say. We're just operating off of the id, but we want to get to self-actualization at a certain point. And that's kind of my problem. And like, now, let's elevate the conversation there. If you want to talk about what Cardi and them talking about, not taking up in a way, that's great. But then soon we have to advance the conversation. Because then if we're just staying here, we're at an id level, as my man Abraham Maslow would say. We're just operating off of the id, but we want to get to self-actualization at a certain point. And that's kind of my problem. And like I said, the brother that I was telling you about is that there's so many different women contributing a lot to the genre of hip-hop. It can't just be all about Cardi B and Meg. Um, and, and, you know, to me, I just kind of feel like we need to have a more diverse way that we appreciate our women and what they bring to the culture and what they add to the tapestry of our society. Because like you, you brought up a good point about id and not enough of us, there's not enough critical conversation around id. And we have to start having that conversation because that's what social media, that's what consumerism is built on. It's all about getting visible and staying visible. I want people to know that I exist um, and I want them to see me in this certain way. I want them to think that I'm beautiful. I want them to think that I'm smart. I want them to think this and this and this and this about me, right? Everything is again, very individualistic. Yep. When we get to, like you said, you're thinking about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you start to go past physiological needs and you start getting into safety and you, know, you start continuing to climb to self-fulfillment right these different stages of self-fulfillment and then like you said getting to actualization a lot of these white folks gonna tell you we're already past self-actualization they already live in star wars right they already they already on that level where it's like listen you know we've got civilization what do they call it they've got uh one civilization number one civilization what yeah like uh, level one civilization i think it goes all the way down to three yeah exactly like, They're like, we're at level one. Like, what's good? And, and here we are still vibrating at this, oh, did you see me, right? Like, and, and we just have to, there's so many, it's like you said, there's nothing wrong with Cardi and there's nothing wrong with Meg. There's nothing wrong with Nikki, right? 
We're not saying that they're not brilliant. They all three are brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we're saying is is that there has to be diversification. It's just like you said with finances. There's got to be diversification. You can't just have cash. Cash is trash. You know, you got to have a little bit of Bitcoin. You got to have a little bit of Ethereum. You know, you got to have a little bit of, you know, a lot, a little bit of everything. So that way, if something bottoms out or something is no longer relevant in your life, it doesn't fill you tomorrow. You well, get well, something I, else. I just want to interject real quick when we were talking about cash. Remember, uh, Wu-Tang told us cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. I just had to- <laughs> Exactly. But, but yeah, it's it's like uh, we have a really vapid society and everything is predicated upon I want fame and I want to be seen. And um, it, do you mind, sister, if I kind of just take it back to myself really briefly because I, I want to put something out there. My whole reason for starting No Truths Barred was that I was one of the few Black people that was sitting up here and I'm reading books about cultural anthropology. I'm reading books like by people like uh, uh, Marcus Redeker, uh, people like Graham Hancock. So I'm reading all these different books. And in order for me to get this information or discourse on this information, oh, I got to go listen to Joe Rogan, or I got to go listen to this white podcaster, or this white podcaster over here. And I just started to say, why don't we have more black podcasters talking about, you know, uh, like they can get, that can talk about like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but they can talk about the Bunician calendar that the Dogon used and then hop over here and talk about these uh, cultures like amongst the Inca and the, the Arawak and whatnot. I will always have to go to white content creators to get that. And so I started No Truths Barred because I want to give Black people that may not even know that they're interested in that sort of subject matter something to listen to. And I see my platform not as, I mean, of course I would love to monetize, but to me, it's a tool of education. And as I get better, I want to educate people. I want people to learn about different books they may not have came in contact with. Matter of fact, one of the segments I'm, I'm introducing, it's gonna start in, uh, in late April, is the No Truths Bar Book Club. So I'm gonna you know, do book reviews, provide reading lists to people. So I say that to say to your point that you can still be in these spaces but leave your vainglorious perspective aside and do something that's going to benefit others than yourself and not just try to say salacious things and controversial stuff just to get a name. Um, we, have to, we have to focus on reality and we have to make sure that we're doing things that are going to have substance because the things that have substance are the things that last. That's it. With COVID too, you know, we're creating you know, you think about 65% of the jobs that will our kids and our kids' kids will be working, they don't exist today. So yep. that means we're creating the future right now. Mm-hmm. And if we're all still vibrating at these very basic, you know, uh, levels, that's not going to serve us well in the future. It's not going to serve our, our generations in the future well either. You know, mm-hmm. we have to move beyond worrying about, you know, are your nails done and are your toes done and what kind of wig you got and all this other stuff. And I'm not knocking anyone who does care about that. Uh, I do understand that apparent appearance, it means a lot to a lot of people, but you know, once you start to run in certain circles where substance is king, or I should say substance is queen at that point, because that's the most powerful. When you look at substance as being queen, 
you don't worry about all these other things that are not tied to your wealth and they're not tied to your health. You know, you have to get past that. You got to diversify your experiences. You have to diversify um, your interests. You know, you've got to find ways to, you know, I know you like your anime, you like your K-pop, you like your uh, Meg Thee Stallion, you like your, uh, you know, Anthony Pompliano because you like Bitcoin. That's great. You know, keep it going. Keep keep the diversification going. There's nothing wrong with, with valuing our culture and every every part of our culture. We're not a monolith. Yeah, we recognize that. And, you know, all of us can get ratchet at some point. You know, we right. pride ourselves on being able to code switch. You know, I know I like to code switch, but the yeah. reality is that I can code switch. And that's yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. point. I uh, I heard this. I heard this quote and it was uh, do everything in moderation and even do moderation in moderation. And so as to say, you're going to have those times where, look, um, I don't drink. You know, I'm not, I don't use anything, you know, I'm because I guess to a lot of people, I look like a square, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but New Year's Eve, I went and bought a bottle of Hennessy and I shared it with a few people. I had some drinks, you know, so it's a time for everything, you know, you don't, but I don't sit up here and drink every day. That was like twice out of the year last year that I actually had an alcoholic beverage. But I want to switch the conversation. Uh, you mentioned Bitcoin. So me and my little tiny, tiny, itty bitty, nuanced, uh, novice steps, excuse me, I'm trying to learn more about cryptocurrencies. Uh, you said that cash is trash. Um, what I want to ask you, have you purchased any Bitcoin? Um, and how do you see, once again, and I got to bring it back to our people, uh, how are we getting this information out about the importance of cryptocurrencies uh, to black and brown people. And so first question is, have you purchased any Bitcoin? And secondly, how we, how successful are we, uh, maybe as content creators, authors, uh, your vote, um, at getting this information out about cryptocurrency to black and brown people? I think that you, you, this is important. Cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, these are very, very important conversations that we have to start having. They're not new. We know that uh, Bitcoin has turned, I think, was it 12 years old this year, mm -hmm. uh, just a week ago. So this is not new under the sun, but for us, it's still new. And I think that uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. If you look at NAACP last year, um, just thinking on the same cryptocurrency side of the house, and while we say cash is trash, and that's not my quote. I think that's Ray, Ray Dalio, I think is his name. Okay. But the reason why we say that is because ownership is where it's at, um, and it's and that's nothing new, right? But it's it's even more so now today because of the COVID, the global uh, coronavirus pandemic. What it's done is accelerated other shadow pandemics, and one of the other shadow pandemics, as you know, is the she session, mm. and the she session uh, is going to be the thing that devastates black and brown families for a very long time because once we you know, unfortunately, we look at the, the times and, you know, with a lot of the uh, pay equity and other types of conversations that we've been having, we've been trying to focus attention on putting more women into the workforce and, you know, sort of uh, making it more equitable for men and women, which means for the black family, for the brown family, of course, that a lot of our men um, 
are losing jobs, have been losing jobs. You look at the jobs report from December, 100% of those job losses were attributed were, were actually attributed to women. But you look at the month before, and it was mostly black men that suffered. And black men have been suffering for a while. So you look at our households, for example, our women are more and more and more becoming uh, the primary um, earners in our households. So with the she session, that taking us out, especially black women in particular, it's, it's hit us more, uh, disproportionately more than any other ethnic group. Uh, what that means for our families specifically uh, is that we are uh, closer and closer and closer to a permanent underclass. I keep telling everybody, if we don't fish to fix this issue of digital divide and digital literacy very soon, we will see that we just are not going to be in the workforce. We're not going to be in the labor force. You know, there's just not going to be any work for us. We're going to have to live off of, you know, a monthly uh, stimulus or some sort of stipend that we get from the government every month. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to have to be what it is because there's no other way, you know, to, to enter the workforce. So, so that's kind of like what I'm looking at. Now, going back to your question about Bitcoin. So, no, I have not purchased any Bitcoin. I have purchased several Satoshis, however. <laughs> okay. When I got in, Bitcoin was trading at about thirty-one thousand uh, per per Bitcoin, thirty-one thousand dollars for one Bitcoin. Uh, so, be, if you are unable, which most most people who got in when I got in, if you're unable to purchase one Bitcoin because you don't have thirty-one thousand dollars to spare, you can still purchase Bitcoin. You just have to purchase a fraction of it, which are called satoshis named after of course the founder of bitcoin okay so yeah so i have several satoshis and and to your point cryptocurrency is very important uh because again it's it's a it's thinking about financial diversification you know uh we're not saying that we're not that gold is not going to be standard uh in the next 20 or 30 years we're just saying that there will be um universal cryptocurrencies that connect different parts of the world that haven't been connected and don't have stable currencies. So if you, when you look at globalization and you look at the economy as it is, uh, you look at Latin America, for example, the, the statistic now is some 50% of uh, folks throughout Latin America don't actually have access to a bank. You know, they don't have a financial institution that they're banking with. What does that mean? That means that a lot of the times uh, they're exchanging, they're bartering. You know, they're bartering salt for whatever, you know, they're still using very basic systems of exchange yeah. uh, of, of transactions. So cryptocurrency comes into play when those individuals are, you know, starting to use their phone and they're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I'm going to use my Square app. I'm going to use Cash app uh, to give you something. Now, if they don't have a dollar or they don't have a, um, you know, a, a good or whatever they, the currency is, if they don't have access to that, but they do have access to Bitcoin or they have access to some blockchain technology like Ethereum, et cetera, then they can find a way to match the value because these are all the cryptocurrency is a decentralized way of looking at a banking system. You know, yeah. all of us can yeah. then gain access to it. So if they look at that and they say, okay, well, I don't have any money in my currency, but I do have X number of, uh, of, of cryptocurrency. Will you accept this for this? Do you do you think um you know and I don't I don't want to go too deep into this well what, what I will say you know there have been a few people like just a gentleman by the name of Gaddafi you know a gentleman with the last name Chavez that you know they 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 weren't 
they did, they kind of wanted to deviate from a certain standard and certain powers didn't really like that. So <clears throat> I'm trying to answer this as vaguely as possible. <laughs> vaguely as possible. What if a certain okay, no system, what if a certain system that has a track record of getting people the fuck out of here that tries to um you know what never mind I don't want to go there that's okay um, this is the remedy but, you're exactly right this but, is this is one answer okay we'll leave it at that we'll leave it at that it's true but, it, this is one answer to that because like you said Gaddafi is a perfect example. You know, you look at the not. continent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, his demise was, was step. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The continent and you look at exact the, the footprint that he left. Uh-huh. The footprint that he left is still there. And and several leaders throughout the continent still aspire right. to 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 one currency, you know, to one standard currency that's recognized across all continent. I mean the entire continent of Africa, right? Brilliant not new totally unprecedented however still cryptocurrency will be the thing that helps accomplish that dream with crypto um if i have a satoshi is it better for me just to like sit on it and hold it can i spend it like once again i'm like how, how does this work if i have have a satoshi in my possession if you're going to it depends on where you purchase. So if you're purchasing on like uh, PayPal or uh, Cash App or Webull or Robinhood, then you know you're given certain buy and sell uh, opportunities there. But for the most part, what people are doing is with, with the with the Satoshi's is they're going and they're purchasing and they're holding. Okay. Most people are not selling, even when they stand to gain a profit. They're still just holding it and. They're, sort of treating it like a savings, mm-hmm. like a savings account. So uh, I guess what if, if I'm purchasing like in small quantities of cryptocurrency uh, and, and I'm try- and I'm asking this because I am a neophyte to this information uh, and I'm asking this for all of the other neophytes as well. What's the what's the ultimate goal? So let's say I have a small segment of cryptocurrency and I'm sitting on it. What exactly am I waiting for? Like, what is that point where I'm like, ah, maybe I should sell, or maybe I should do this. Like, what, like for you, example, for you, you for example, what exactly, like people like yourselves that are really knowledgeable about cryptocurrency, what is that magic or optimal moment that you guys are waiting for? From for holding- me, it's just like, it's just like my investment portfolio. So okay. it's all about your reward to risk ratio. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at, the amount that I've invested, and if I'm not able to triple or quadruple it, then I'm going to hold until I can do so. And yeah. and and it's the same thing for your investment portfolio when you're buying, you know, buying and selling stocks. You know, you're you might have purchased Palantir today uh, because you caught it, you know, when it was going parabolic. You know, it was it was on the dip. You bought it in the dip. You know, that's what everybody talks about buying it in the dip. When you go into and look at the markets tomorrow, and you decide when you want to sell, you're going to sell once. You you've made your money and you've at least doubled it or, or quadrupled it depending on whatever it is that you need. Most of the time for us, we sell in order to get back in. Mm-hmm. So when I sell, if I'm quadrupling my investment for Bitcoin, you know, when I, when I finally decide to sell, what that means is I'm going to be able to go back and purchase more Bitcoin and then have enough residual to be able to pay off my car. 
for example. Gotcha. You know, that's the goal that you're going into. That's part of your risk management uh, plan, though, when you're trading. You have to have a risk management plan. And like you said, there's got to be some sort of uh, cognizant discussion of your risk to reward ratio. Is it a one to three? You know, for every one that I've invested, I'm getting three back. You know, you have to have that. It's similar to sports betting. And um, uh, when you bet uh, on poker games and stuff like that, that same odd calculator that people use for poker games, it's the same odd calculator. One to three, one to two, one to four. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely, uh, this year, I definitely plan on really getting into the cryptocurrency world and um, because it seems like the practical thing to do. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm very meticulous with doing research and kind of learning all of the ins and outs before I jump into that particular pool, if you will. Um, So I'm about to wrap this up, but I kind of want to end it on a lighthearted note. So let's play a game. All right. The game is, uh, hmm, how do I want to phrase this? Okay, here it is. Two lies and one truth. Give the people uh, three three things about yourself, all right? One of them is the truth, and the other two are lies. Okay. And when I post a video up, you don't have to you don't have to uh, answer it right now. But when I post a video up, we'll let people guess. And then you can like maybe comment or make a response video to like which one uh, is the truth. But I'm gonna guess though. I'm gonna guess like right here on the podcast. All right. I am the. My name is Lahana Chambers Lawson. I am the owner, chief innovation officer, and principal consultant of Tacit Growth Strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I served as the president of. Haven for Hope, which is a uh, homeless uh, continuum of care uh, service provider here in San Antonio, one of the largest. Uh, and I am a lecturer at Our Lady of the Lake University. Mm. Which one is the lie? <laughs> hmm. I'm going to go with the second one. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> The outcome <laughs> when the rest of the world finds out. Um, so like, do you do you have anything? Uh, you know, in addition to your book, like you have working on that you're working on or coming up next, any speaking engagements? Any? Uh, you have you invited me to a webinar like a few months ago. Uh, I think it was you, Tiffany Haddish, yes. and a few other people, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, do you have anything else like that coming up this year? Uh, what 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 moves, power moves you got coming up? Uh, in the 2021 year? I've got a couple of speaking engagements next month for Black History Month. One is with Endeavors, um, Family Endeavors, but they're now called Endeavors. Mm-hmm. And the other one is with uh, SUNY, uh, State University of New York, at oh, Duchess, cool. the Duchess campus. Yeah. Are you flying up? No, it's virtual. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And the, the keynote speaker is Dr. Sylvester Gates. So blown away. I'm going to enjoy that. Awesome. Um, what did he say? He said math is his language, his first language. Mm. Man, <laughs> would you mind imparting or telling us what you're going to be lecturing about? Or you want to kind of keep that under wraps until? That conversation, I think the topic of that discussion is um, advancing Black voices at Sydney. It's something to that, to that effect. We're going right. to talk about how to create, how this academic environment can be more conducive to mm-hmm. nurturing and retaining uh, African-American faculty and staff and students. So it's going to be a good conversation. 
And then oh. in March is when I have the, the next webinar, but that's what the Project Management Institute. So that's projectmanagement.com, and that webinar is going to be uh, using Project Management to write competitive grants and proposals. Okay, and uh, just let the people know how they can find you. Tell them to go to growthistacit.com. You can, uh, our links to um, all of our social media for the company and for me is on my website at growthistacit.com. So you can keep up with me pretty easily on social media. We post pretty much all of our events and everything that we got going on on social media. So go to growthistacit.com and you'll see all of our social icons on the website that you can click on and follow. Okay, well, listen, um, once again, I want to thank you for taking time out of your business schedule to come onto my platform. You're, you're the first guest to come on three different times. And uh, listen, you are a friend of the podcast. You are officially No Truths Barred. You're an alumnus of the No, uh, alum, alumna, excuse me, of the No Truths Barred platform. Uh, anytime you want to come on, chop it up, whatever. Just let me know. I, I thank you for your support because uh, it's really difficult doing this platform. And, you know, you're one of the few people that have definitely supported. And uh, I definitely appreciate it. It definitely does not go unnoticed. And I love what you're doing with Real Management Talk. Like I told you, you're giving people, you know, Jay-Z said, I'm giving you a billion dollars a game for $9.99. You guys are giving people a billion dollars a game for free. All they have to do is just go subscribe to the YouTube channel and watch Real Management Talk as well. Um, once again, thank you. And this has been episode 57. This is crazy. Fifth episode 57 of No Truths Barred. And uh, this episode will be available Wednesday. So when you see this, definitely like, comment, and share. And once again, I'm your host, Hoyt Kuwaiti Simmons. You can find me on Instagram at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, underscore Kuwaiti, K-W-A-K-U, underscore Simmons, that's C-I-M-M-O-N-S. Also, the new page is underscore No Truths Barred Podcast. Follow me on Twitter, and I got the TikTok page coming. Oh! <laughs> nice. Talk about narcissism, huh? No, it's necessary. We got to get the word out. Got you, got you. But um, definitely, this is a great episode, powerful episode, a lot of dope clips that's going to be coming from this. And uh, once again, much love. Thank you again for coming on, my sister. I definitely appreciate it. And until next time, Peace. This has been episode 57 of the No Truths Barred podcast. If you like this podcast and you want to continue to support the platform, make sure you're following me on all social media outlets, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all of the latest updates concerning the No Truths Barred platform. And also, make sure you subscribe and follow the YouTube channel, which is No Truths Barred. Thank you, much love, and peace.